This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So first, I want to cite all of the real caveats, many of which we've covered on this show. The pandemic isn't good for anybody, and it's been beyond awful or straight out deadly for millions of people. And there are no silver linings, but still, people go to work, they serve food, they teach, they adopt pandemic puppies, I don't know, mine for Bitcoin. Oh my god, wait a minute, are we going to do an episode about my Bitcoin? No, we're not doing an episode about your Bitcoin. <laughs> wait a second, well, the last episode we did was about the Biden boom, we talked about economics, and I thought like the perfect thing for us to do would be to, to talk about buying Bitcoin. I don't actually believe that you own Bitcoin, but you are on track about this episode because we decided to follow up on our macroeconomics discussion in our last episode with a more specific and on-brand discussion of how the great reopening will affect authors and the publishing industry in general. So we're going to talk about my Tesla. Oh my God, I might as well just do this whole show by myself. <laughs> in the second half of the show, we'll talk to novelist Monica West about her new book, Revival Season, and what it's like to launch a book right now. Can we talk about my GameStop stock? But first, we're going to talk to Whitney's long-suffering editor, Sean McDonald. Sean is the founder and publisher of the imprint MCD at FSG. He's been an editor at Ferrar, Strauss, and Drew since 2011. He's the co-founder and publisher of FSG Originals, FSG's noted line of paperback and digital originals. He previously worked as an executive editor and online creative director at Riverhead, as an editor at Nantalese Doubleday, and at Arcade Publishing. He has worked with such writers as Sloan Crosley, John Darnielle, Juno Diaz, Nicola Griffith, Marlon James, George Saunders, Tamara Shopson, Robin Sloan, Hector Tobar, Ellen Ullman, Jeff Vandermeer, and God save him, Whitney Terrell. Wait a minute. You invited my editor to be on the show? Why wouldn't I invite your editor to be on the show? He's perfect to talk about this stuff. I thought you'd be happy. I'm not done with the book. Okay, but you're going to be... No, I'm not... I'm not ready to talk right now. I can't do it right now. Hey, hey, Sean, Whitney's not done with his book. Sean, welcome to the show. I've heard a lot about you. Thanks so much. It's uh, exciting to be here. (laughs) Thank you very much uh, for being here. Uh, To quote Gilda Radner, which nobody may even know who that is anymore, it's always something the world never says to publishers. uh, We have nothing going on and all we want to do is pay attention to your books. Um, but there are degrees, right? So when we published The Good Lieutenant together, Trump was the story. But I personally felt lucky, you know, compared to twenty to 2001 when I published my first novel right before 9-11. In your years in publishing, where does COVID rank in terms of disruptive events in publishing books? Uh, in terms of disruption, I mean, I can't really think of anything more the last year overall. I mean, there's just been, we've just been through so much. I mean, COVID itself obviously has been insane on its own and, you know, the shutdown and all that. Um, but then, you know, the murder of George Floyd, the protests, the election, you know. <laughs> I mean, the Trump presidency itself, all of those things were such gigantic stories. I mean, we are focusing on COVID here, but yeah, all of the, any of those stories would have dominated any news cycle. Yeah. So, I mean, we knew we were coming into an election last year, but, I, you know, we didn't know anything that was going to be surrounding it. But yeah, I mean, just the whole shutdown has been you know, just on a personal level, like more disruptive than anything I I can think of. Yeah. I mean, it's funny to even think about the word disruption. Like at what point it's, it's not even a disruption anymore. It's just like an altered state of 
normal that we have to plan for. And so I think we were really curious, or I was really curious to talk to you about the practicalities of publishing under these very strange conditions, this uncharted territory. And, and based on what Whitney has told me about you as an editor, you know, I'm assuming you approach the books you published during this strange time with the same heart and excitement and conviction as usual, but it's like a whole different toolbox probably that you had to use. So I'd love to hear you talk about how you had to change stuff. Everything feels different. You know, the biggest thing for me has been the difference and I guess the utter inability to to really imagine what what it's like on the other end of the screen or whatever it is for, for everyone else, just because lives have become so different and you don't, you just don't know what it is that's going on outside, you know, your, your viewfinder. And I think you just, you just feel much more sensitive to it. It feels weird to be, you know, approaching anyone with trying to convince them to read something or to write about something. Um, you know, it, it often feels, feels inappropriate. Um, and, you know, as we've tried to get, closer to what everyone keeps calling a new normal, I think we've gotten more used to having those conversations, but, but that context is just, yeah, so radically different that it's, um, yeah, it's, it's hard. Everything feels harder that way. Um, you have to have to push through, push through so much that you don't know. And, um, you know, I think when we were all in offices and, um, you know, there was just kind of some assumptions about what, what everyone's days were like and what, what they were focusing on and able to focus on. And that just doesn't feel like the case at the moment. Um, and yeah, clearly all, all the tools are different, um, from, you know, those basic things like knowing where to send things to people, how to reach them, when to reach them, uh, what, what to expect from when you're going to be able to get something done, when someone else is going to get something done. It's all just, it all feels completely jumbled from where we were a year ago. So I'm really curious about calendars. Did you, you know, this thing hit and you're sort of like, I don't know how long this is going to last. Did you go back and Jenga your calendar, your publishing schedule around? Did, did books get actually moved or did you have to a lot more time for stuff? How did time work? Time is my friend, Lacey Johnson says time is a soup. <laughs> Yeah, soup works. It's <laughs> yeah, but anyway, lots of things got moved. The printers all got got hit by COVID, sort of at least as hard as anyone else in the industry, and so they were working on with diminished staffs, um, and you know they were trying to do social distancing, so they had fewer people there, um, and so yeah, so printing schedules fell way behind. So we had to sort of shift everything based on when we could expect printings to come in. They're still not back to what was normal. And so that's definitely changed a lot of, you know, the way we figure out not so much when to publish, but how much to print and, and what to expect from each publication. And it's, it's changed the way we have to think about the way things are going to work just because the turnaround times are different. Um, and that, but yeah, that was a huge disruption in the way we publish. It was, you know, never before have we just shifted books wholesale, um, trying to predict when things were going to be normal again, um, predict when we were going to be able to get books. But the big thing was just moving things by months and or often longer. So many, many more important things happened bad in the world during COVID than things that happened in the publishing industry to us in our like world, right? You know, that it, it was a terrible, terrible pandemic. But our show is at least partly about this industry, you know. Um, you can't really complain about a book launch being disrupted while millions of people are dying from a dread disease across the globe, you know, but one can feel if you're an author, 
uh, private grief and uncertainty, you know, um, for a lot of work, you know, sort of being put in doubt, you know, and that was how I felt after publishing the novel that I published, you know, right before 9-11. And I talked to my editor at the time, it was not you, it was Ray Roberts, about how that event changed or didn't change things for the book. Did you have conversations like that with authors? And, and how did, how, what were those like? Yeah. I mean, you know, those have been ongoing conversations. They've evolved as, as the situation has evolved, obviously, you know, at first we really did think we were to be back in a couple of weeks and it was just going to be a serious, but, but brief disruption. It feels silly now, but those were heartbreaking moments of canceling a few stops of a book tour or, you know, like trying to reconfigure some things on the fly. And yeah, so every author I've published, I think we've had some long conversations about, or short conversations over many calls or emails about the situation and what to expect and what we can't expect. It's this crazy thing where we're all in it together, but what we're in together is being isolated. And so it, it's, it's hard to convey a sense of uh, collective expectation, I guess. But I think everyone understands this is a crazy time to be publishing a book. It's a crazy time to be trying to communicate to lots of people. And so everyone understands that there's even more of a, a kind of lottery quality to, quality to it, which is heartbreaking because, yeah, it's, yes, there are horrible things going on. At the same time, people have spent years and years of their lives on these books. And, you know, it's hard to, hard to be putting them out there without the confidence of knowing, you know, what's going to work and what's not going to work. Does it take an emotional toll on you? You're not a person who front and centers what Sean is feeling, because I think that you, as an editor, try to think about what your authors are feeling. And like, you know, so you would never say like, boy, this has been really hard to me, because you'd be talking to me about something that I was having a hard time with, right? But surely it's got to be difficult. It's been a really hard training year. Like how much of that is about, you know, um, the difficulties of, of publishing? I don't know. But yeah, it's it's been a it's been a draining year. Is there a de decision that you made this year that was one that really surprised you? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think Whitney and I did an episode on this pandemic fairly early on. We had Richard Preston on and uh, Lori China, a reporter with the with the South China uh, Morning Post, and and I don't know that I had a sense of what was coming, but I had like a pretty an intense sense of that something that was going to last for a long time was going to be really bad was going to happen. This was in February of 2020. And he said on the podcast, he said, I don't know if the streets of New York will be empty like Wuhan, but I think probably so. Wow. And, and I think that, right. I mean, one of the things that was, has been so exhausting has been the uncertainty. And so you're not only making a new decision when you've already you, you maybe have something, right? You maybe have a book schedule that you thought is settled. You know, I planned this whole thing and now I've got to redo it and I have to redo it within the parameters of this uncertainty. So then there's also the fear that you might have to do it again and again and again. And I wonder, you know, is there a decision that you look back on that you feel like characterizes this period for you or surprised you in some way? I haven't thought about that. And in terms of specific decisions, I it does feel like it's been... A lot of triage. I mean, I think of sort of everyone in this period is just is simply surviving. And um, so I think of a lot of the things we've done has been, yeah, making decisions based on surviving. I mean, for me, the first thing was leaving the city, which is a place I've lived for my entire adult life. But so I no, I don't really I, I don't have a like a big decision that I made somewhere in the middle of this because it really has been a kind of 
day by day, let's get through this, let's figure it out. Well, I mean, you're an extremely inventive publisher, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But I also want to talk about, Suki and I are focusing on the author-editor relationship. I don't know why. We must be, there must be some unique interest there for us. But I want to talk about the editor-editor relationship or the editor-art director relationship and the editor-publicist relationship. You know, I've been in quite a number of publishing houses, including at, at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and there's a lot of community there. You know, there are things that Ray used to always talk about the hot titles meeting. I don't know if that was just a uh, Viking thing or if that everyone has a hot titles meeting, you know, or, you know, you, you know, when somebody buys a book, they have to, you don't have to do that because you have your own imprint now, but you used to, sometimes you got to meet with the whole editorial staff and pitch the book and everyone has to talk about it. Right. And these things are all happening. And there's, you know, people are talking in the hallways, all this stuff. And now you've been working uh, remotely. I mean, how much, um, how much is lost through that? Um, I mean, there are certainly a few things that work better and, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll learn from those and, and figure out how to incorporate them in whatever, whatever the new normal happens to look like. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing you were, you mentioned about the talking in the hallways is, is the biggest difference is that everything's an appointment. There's not the sense of, you know, grabbing someone just because, you know, you're worried about something or you're excited about something or you have an idea or they have an idea. And yeah, just that sort of organic sense of, of being in being in the project together. You can you can recreate that a little bit in, in a Zoom call, but even so you're prescribed to your forty five minutes or sixty minutes or half an hour and um you know, and so everyone's saving up things for each conversation and running through agendas and you know, that's just it's certainly not the way my conversations used to work. And um, yeah, I, I miss that a lot. And then in addition to kind of the, the water cooler or hallway chatter um, or spontaneous conversations that we're alluding to here, there's also just sort of the purely social elements of publishing, you know, um, the famed publishers lunches or big fancy book launch parties or taking writers out to drinks. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether all of that stuff is coming back or not. I was, it was interesting to me to see, you know, award ceremonies where writers were dressing up in their cocktail gear to zoom from home. I appreciate sort of the, the spirit of that. Um, I don't know that we're returning to the in-person version of it. What do you think? I think some of it will be back. Absolutely. Um, obviously I hope lunch comes back. Um, <laughs> you know, I, um, it's, yeah, I mean, on, on the list of things about the city that I miss, not cooking is one of them. Where's the first place you'll go for lunch when you go back and you can have your first lunch from uh, your office? I honestly can't even answer that because everything's different now. You know, there are restaurants that are gone. There are restaurants that are different. There, uh, It's a strange thing to go back to the city now. Um, I'm about two hours away from the city now, so we, go, we do get back in. But every trip, it feels like something's shifted subtly and you know, the places I, I would go to regularly are either gone or they're just sort of different versions of themselves. And, and yeah, that's kind of what I was, part of what I was alluding to earlier is that for better and definitely for worse, uh, publishing is such a New York city based business. Um, and there was this sense of commonality in that, and that feels at the very least diluted right now. I, we weren't planning on talking about this, but it's so interesting to hear you talk about New York. And I don't think I've had any talk to anyone about the city itself. I feel like New York has been changed more than Kansas City, where I live. I mean, most of the restaurants that I would hang out are still around. I mean, some have closed, but I could name to you like, oh, I'll go to this place or this place now that I've been vaccinated, you know. So I guess like 
uh, I, I'm not going to ask you to describe New York now, but I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, like, it seems like it's going to be a really different city when you go back. Yes. I mean, I, there's no question that, that it will be different. Um, you know, I, I believe in the city. I believe the city will be back. I believe it will be a different city. And, you know, there's a lot that will be lost that I'm sure I'll miss and that will be heartbreaking. But, but it will also be back. So... Sean, as we are moving towards a kind of tentative reopening, but it seems like a definitive reopening, um, you know, you've got some optimism in that answer there, too. And I wonder if you learned anything useful about publishing books during this past period of lockdown that will stay with you. Um, You know, for instance, the in-person book tour with the flight schedule that you alluded to before and the plane tickets and the hotel reservations. That was, I think, for a lot of people already dying for a lot of reasons before the pandemic. And I wonder if those are done or whether you're going to start planning them again. I've been been honestly a little surprised at how how vehemently many people have wanted those back, because as you were saying, that they it did feel like that was something that that was sort of clearly fading. But I so, but I do believe they'll be back in some form. I don't think they'll be back in the way that people imagined them, which, which was largely in the past, but you know, the 28 city tour of flight in a hotel every day is, I think at least will be, will be very, very limited. Um, there will be events in bookstores again and yeah, people have, have missed them in ways, ways that have surprised them, have surprised me. The biggest thing we've learned that is that we can do it still, that, that publishing still works and, and, you know, we, we can still bring books to people even in the craziest of circumstances. And we learned that we, we can change how we do things to, to try to adapt. I feel like you were in some ways, and maybe you don't want to hear this, like uniquely uh, equipped to sort of deal with this kind of experimentation because you've always been a very experimental editor and publisher and you founded your own imprint, MCD FSG, in May 2016. You know, the stated goal uh, at that time was to, quote, create a space to publish work and experiment with publishing styles forms and genres that are at the edges of FSG's traditions. So you are and you always have been somebody who takes those kind of risks. You know, you have the, you, you launched the electric eel. That, that was before the pandemic, um, but you're still uh, doing that newsletter. Um, I saw in April that you hosted a live reading with Kawhi Strong Washburn, who's been on this show for the MCD FSG Instagram page. What kind of experiments did you try during the pandemic and which one of those works? Which of them worked best? And do you think you'll keep sticking with? I did go into this feeling a little bit like, yeah, we were not equipped for it, but half of our team was already remote. And so it seemed like we, you know, maybe should should have a leg up and that type of thing, um, which I think was true. I, I do think maybe we were it was a little easier at first, but then I think that also led me to underestimate exactly just how, <laughs> you know, traumatic and, and, um, you know, upsetting the whole thing would be for, for everyone involved. Um, but yeah, in terms of things we did, the thing I was proudest of was this event we did for, for Maria Devana Headley's translation of Beowulf last fall. We organized this, this sort of marathon reading of the, the entire book with a, a kind of star-studded cast of readers. And it turned out to be this amazing month-long experience that just felt like a special a special event for the book, the kind of thing that, I don't know, even if we had done it in New York City, it would have been a very limited experience without, without the reach that, that we could have with this. We could bring in different people that we wouldn't have been able to do in person, even in New York City. 
Um, and yeah, it just felt like this, this special moment that celebrated this very unexpected, you know, sensation of a publication and, and got to bring different voices and, and different audiences in. And, uh, we, we worked with an independent bookseller who's out here near me, one grand books and, you know, they were instrumental, uh, entirely to pulling it off. And so, yeah, it, it fostered a sense of, of collaboration that I think was, has always been there a bit, but became front and center the way we were always collaborating with, with different people to make things happen. And, um, and yeah, so that was, that was the, the single event that I was proudest of. We did have Maria on the show and she announced that that thing was going to happen. So, uh, I was excited to see it go. I thought it worked really well. Oh, cool. It was really awesome. It was a very, it was, yeah, it was very cool to see, um, yeah, the list of people who was, who were reading the book and, um, the excitement around that was, it reached such a broad and interesting audience and so very, and every day people would talk about it, um, which was just a lot of fun to see. That's like, you can't predict that. You wouldn't have said like, oh, well, there's going to be a pandemic and the big hit book that I'm going to do is going to be a translation of Beowulf. That's going to work. It's going to be awesome. That's how we do pandemics. <laughs> that. That, like I said, was all completely unexpected, which was great. It was thrilling, of course. And and in that event, it was so amazing to watch the energy that all the different readers put into it. Each one of the readings was this little special event. And yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, that book is so great. So before the pandemic, uh, we were starting to see kind of rise from the ashes stories about independent bookstores. You know, they survived. Amazon didn't kill them. People were buying, lo and behold, physical books. Ebook sales had plateaued and suddenly COVID comes along. People don't want to go into stores. They don't want to touch books. Um, I touch a surface. You touch a surface. What happens? Uh, Amazon hires hundreds of thousands of people and consolidates its position as the largest retailer in the world. Jeff Bezos makes a bazillion, jillion dollars. Um, do you have a sense from the FSG sales force of how bookstores are doing? And, and what about physical book sales as compared to ebooks? There was definitely a surge for ebooks, as, as you'd expect at the beginning. And, but it was not, not overwhelming. And certainly it, you know, physical books never, never went away. Um, physical book sales never went away. And, and the booksellers, it's been a hard year. I mean, you know, I think for their part of the business more, more than any of us, there are some stores where, you know, they'll tell me that they, they've, they maintained 80% or more of their business which is amazing and incredible in so many ways. Also, it's a 20% drop in their business. Um, a lot of stores obviously didn't maintain that. Some Certainly some stores have gone out of business. And then there are a lot of stores just figuring things out. Like I said, surviving day to day. And I think we're still, we're going to have to see how that all, how that all works out. But, you know, by and large, I think that story you were hearing, kept going. I mean, I think everyone saw like their local indie businesses really fighting to survive. And I think, and being creative and being, being aware of what they were good at and figuring out how to, how to adapt that. I think, you know, the rise of e-commerce for those stores has been substantial and has forced them to, to figure out some things that now hopefully will be useful for them, but, but who knows what, what, what the future holds that way. Um, Amazon obviously has probably become only more dominant and that's, you know, one of the big storylines of publishing for the past, past few years. And that's, you know, it's not an unusual observation that so much of what happened during COVID was just 
an acceleration of, of trends that were already there. I, I think this is no different that that there's been a lot of fight shown and a lot of creativity, a lot of innovation, you know, and a continuing story where, where we don't we don't really know. We know it's been a really hard year. A lot of stores have survived and done much better than I think, you know, they had anticipated when things just completely shut down. But where we end up in, in another year is still anyone's question. And, and, you know, the only real lesson is, you know, support your local bookstore. During online readings, people would hold virtual events and those would be sponsored by book t- bookstores. And, you know, I moderated a couple of those and I'm, you know, Whitney, Whitney may have done the same. We did events uh, where they were sponsored by bookstores. You know, Tom Frank was on the show and that was sponsored by the by the library, by a bookstore. And then you would see people put links in the chat. You know, this is the code. Get the book 20 percent off tonight. And in some ways, Zoom is so precise. You know, there's like 77 participants. Oh, in two minutes, I went down to 73. Oh my God, it went up to 82. I can't see any of them. I'm talking into a void. But a statistic that is not available to us, right, is like how many books are sold during an online event. And I had started off kind of assuming that it would be maybe on par or maybe even better because, you know, for some people, clicking is easier. And then I started to hear like trickles from my friends that it was not going that well, the online events. And then I thought about my own, you know, I have all sorts of um, kind of ergonomic stuff that with the pandemic has gotten worse. I've got severe dry eye. Like I'm now much less likely to go to a Zoom reading. But if I think, oh, I would have gone in person, I'd like actually make sure to go and buy the book. What is your feeling about how those events move books or don't? You know, it's nothing like like a sort of everyone who shows up buys a book by any means. And I would say probably they're not quite as efficient as in-person books, bookstore events. Um, but in-person bookstore events also were not, you know, anything like 100% efficient in terms of, of who showed up versus who bought books. And, and the trade-off, of course, is that you can reach so many more people from so many more different places in a Zoom event. So I think they had been a really key part and a really successful part of the beginning of, of the COVID response. There is definitely Zoom fatigue at this point. Um, you know, I think, as, as you're saying, like you can see so much about about how many people show up and how long they last and, and what ends up happening. And, you know, people are definitely, definitely tired in, in so many different ways. And as you were saying earlier about, you know, with book tours, we're, we're sort of trying to practice what we've learned um, from from the past year, and that's that's ever evolving, and trying to figure out what what do we do about about the fatigue. All right. So speaking of, we don't want to. We're not going to. We're trying not to wear you out. We are right here at the end. We've just got a couple more questions that I, I wanted to ask, and one of them that I'm genuinely curious about is like, and I don't know what sense you get of this. Maybe you get a sense of this from looking at book sales or what books took off. We were just talking about the surprise of Maria Devana Headley, but. Did people change what they wanted to read about during the pandemic? You know, were there cert- certain titles of yours? I guess there is it that we have already mentioned a title of yours that took off in an unexpected or surprising way. And I also wondered, like, were, was, were certain genres more popular, like fiction? Did fiction take off or was nonfiction more popular? Did people buy more poetry? I mean, people were shut in. There is a benefit to a certain extent of in the book world of the fact that people would have theoretically had more time to read. I think that's true. I think people did have more time to read. I think people probably were reading more and, and are reading more, have been reading more. Um, 
a lot of where we saw our sales were not in the front list. I mean, where we saw the sales really increase, but in the back list. Um, and, you know, and the, the Beowulf example maybe maybe connected to that, that, you know, people were looking for something, to my mind, like a mix of something new, but also familiar. Like there was a, a bit of a baseline that like you knew you were going get, to get something. And so, yes, I think people people were reading more. Obviously, it was harder to to make the space around each publication to really like give everything the level of to drive the conversation around a book um, was just much harder. There were certain books uh, you mentioned, uh, Kavai's book, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, where I felt like you know that came out right as, as the world shut down. It was um, March twenty twenty, and it was a book that was it did have the book tour and. You know, it was the first author I got to, to send to Hawaii on a book tour. And, um, <laughs> you know, that all got cut off immediately. That book is great. And I said Kawai, and he did tell me to say Kavai. And I'm going to just say to Kavai now. I, I'm sorry I messed that up earlier. And so, anyway, so, yeah, I mean, I felt like that book we, we yeah, ma managed to publish uh, effectively. Um, fiction versus nonfiction. I think a certain kind of nonfiction was really hard. A, um, a kind of thoughtful nonfiction about issues that we had all anticipated being really urgent. Um, you know, I think people felt like it was, it was time where we could drive a conversation about climate change, um, about immigration. I mean, some topics that were really, really front of mind in January, February, 2020, that, um, you know, there was, there was a different kind of crisis where we were all just, just surviving. So um, as a last question, uh, as sort of fan service for our listeners, many of whom are writers busily sending out pitch letters and trying to sell work, now that the pandemic is over, do you or do you not want to read book proposals about it? <laughs> uh, no, not yet. <laughs> um, I... Oh, I'm closing the file on my computer right now. <laughs> I mean, one of the stranger experiences for me during the pandemic was that I had, I had signed up this book about quarantine years ago. And one of my last meetings, professional meetings, was with the authors. Um, you know, I think it was in February, and they they like you had this this sense that something was coming, and were feeling very urgent about their book. And so, editing this book about quarantine during quarantine was one of the more like meta professional experiences that I've ever had. Um, and I certainly feel I like it has an incredibly timely value to it. And you know, and I do believe that it's that people want to understand what we've just been through. But, you know, in terms of like a, a grand synthesis of, of what's happened to us during COVID, I, I can't believe we're ready for that, um, that anyone's ready to have that perspective. I think it took us a while with something like 9-11 to, to um, you know, be ready to, to share that experience. So I think it's going to be there in everything we're doing in the, the near future. But, you know, in terms of people's pandemic diaries i'm i may be missing out but no i'm not not ready for that yet sean thank you so much for joining us and i want to note that the we're recording this on a sunday afternoon when the lakers are playing the suns sean is the editor of the mama man mentality kobe bryant's book and so he has taken time out to talk with us during a lakers game which proves his at least commitment to these writers that he's been discussing and we appreciate it um Listeners, we encourage you to check out all of the offerings from MCD Books and from Farrar Strauss and Giroux in general. I feel extremely lucky to work with Sean and all the people there, and I'm constantly amazed and astounded 
by the writers they publish. Here are some of the most recent MCD books titles to check out. That book about quarantine that Sean was just referring to is called Until Proven Safe by Jeff Manaw and Nicola Twilley. Hummingbird Salamander by Jeff Vandermeer, who's been on this podcast twice and we love, came out in April. And Sorrowland by River Solomon, which came out on May 4th. We'll put links to all of these books, The Electric Eel, the MCD Books website, and social media accounts in the show notes. Thank you guys so much. This was great. And yes, I'm missing some basketball, but entirely worth it. So thank you. (laughs) Sean, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to meet you after hearing so much. Nice to meet you too. Starring Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany, Realm presents the official continuation of the hit TV series Orphan Black. It's been eight years since Project Leda was destroyed for good, but all is not well. When a dangerous genetic technology is stolen and an unknown clone appears, Kasima and the other clones are forced to struggle for survival. In Orphan Black, the next chapter, we follow the original Sestras, Sarah, Allison, Kasima, and those they love have been free to live quiet, anonymous lives. But that anonymity comes at a cost. Kasima is unable to pursue the cutting-edge science that saved her life. Sarah's daughter, Kira, is suffocated by her mother's insistence on secrecy. And Charlotte, the youngest Leda clone, questions why her family gets to survive while other unaware clones get sick and die. Everything changes when Vivi Valdez, a CIA agent, discovers she too is a clone and goes rogue. Vivi's pursuit of the truth brings chaos to the original clone club when one of them is accused of murder. To prove their innocence, they must step out of the shadows and publicly claim the secret they've sacrificed everything to protect. Catch up now before the season finale on June 11, 2021, and season two will launch in October of this year. Comicbook.com says a truly thrilling sequel that captures the mystery, humanity, and heart of the original series. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is a genuinely great sequel, one that the original series and its clone club of fans absolutely deserve. Listen to Orphan Black, the next chapter, available wherever you get your podcast. And now we're thrilled to talk to Monica West. Born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, Monica is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, where she was a Ronan Jaffe graduate fellow. She has received a fellowship from Cambilio Fiction and a residency from Hedgebrook, and she currently lives in Oakland, California, where she is reading everything that she can get her hands on, teaching high school English, and writing another novel. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Teaching high school English is hard. Are you kidding me? Why are you trying to write a book and do that? That's too much work. <laughs> so hard. What it doesn't say is that I've been part-time since Iowa. So I used to okay. teach full-time high school English. Now I'm teaching part-time, and then next year I won't be teaching high school English at all. I'll be teaching uh, at USF, a visiting uh, assistant professor of fiction at USF. So, But I've been teaching high school for 14 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. heroic. And and congratulations on your new gig. That's very cool. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're very excited to talk to you about your debut novel, Revival Season, which was published at the end of May and has gotten rave reviews. Um, It follows an evangelical family, the Hortons. And in your book, the Hortons take to the road for Revival Season, during which they hope to save as many souls as they can. But their patriarch, Samuel, is in trouble. I wonder if you could start us off in this talk by reading from the book. 
Absolutely. So the section I'm going to read is takes place right at the beginning of there's the the family's the Hortons. The oldest daughter Miriam is 15 and she's the narrator of the book. She's a first person narrator and they follow the they follow the father around. They are kind of with him over the series of, you know, these summer revivals and then this first revival something goes wrong and Miriam sees something that really disturbs her and this is kind of the aftermath of that. The family has to leave the revival tent after everything kind of goes awry. And this is Miriam's kind of reflection on what's just happened and she doesn't quite fully understand what she's just seen. A wave of nausea churned in my stomach as Papa made the processional inside. He slipped on a wan smile and stepped behind the pulpit, raising his arms to signal that it was time for the call to worship. The deacons were supposed to join him on stage, but they stayed with the congregation, leaving only Caleb in the semicircle of chairs behind Papa. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. These words, usually met with applause, were greeted with cacophonous silence. The microphone screeched, but Papa continued speaking, even as his words were inaudible over the crackling feedback. What happened last night? A voice from the back of the tent yelled above the din. You put him in the hospital. Ma stiffened beside me as she wrapped the long strap of her purse around her hand. I shifted my eyes to the right to avoid a conspicuous turn of my head and counted the, the fast blinks of her confused, glassy eyes, watched the slightest tremble in her top lip. My eyes skipped from her to Caleb, who was seated behind Papa on the stage, gripping both sides of the folding chair as Papa raised his arms to stop the congregation's incessant shouting. But the voices kept coming one after another. A preacher wouldn't do that to someone, a woman's voice shouted. You are no preacher, some man said. With each declaration, Caleb drifted farther away from the stage until his eyes were pointed somewhere over my head at what I imagined was an object outside of the tent's open flaps. My neck snapped around for the first time all service. The seats were mostly empty, and the faces that stared back at Papa were full of anger. Papa looked down at his papers as though the answer was written there. He adjusted the wireless microphone behind his ear, but his lips didn't move. Saints of God, I want to talk to you about the mysteries of faith. He was yelling now, but their booing drowned out his amplified voice. Ma rooted in the side pocket of her purse until the keyring was in her hand. With each new jeer that rose behind us, she gripped the keys tighter in her fist until only a spike of silver stuck out. She scooted to the front of her chair, planted her black heels squarely on the grass, and stood, pulling me up with her. We had never left a revival early. The jeers got louder behind us as my hand hooked under Hannah's armpit to bring her to her tottering feet. Soon we were speed walking out of the back of the tent. We burst through the line of deacons and Ma ran at full speed to the car and started it. I was just finishing buckling Hannah in when Papa and Caleb appeared, illuminated by the individual circular ground lights that shone outside the tent. What was that, Samuel? Mama asked after getting out and sliding into the passenger seat so Papa could drive. Let's just get out of here. No, what were those lies they were saying? You didn't hurt that man. You just tried to heal him. Did something else happen after the revival service? We can talk about this later. He tossed his arm around the passenger seat and looked backward into the rear window. The van zipped away from the tent in reverse. We're going to talk about it now. Her words rose at the end with a sharpness that was reserved for times when she was angry with me or Caleb. I'd never heard her use that tone with Papa. Papa ignored her until Ma grabbed the gear shift and jolted the van into park. My head crashed into the back of the driver's seat. I threw out a stiff right arm to keep Hannah in place. You need to go back there and tell them that it's all a misunderstanding. We're not going to run away from here like criminals. Tell them. 
Ma's words knife through the minivan's air as she leaned close to Papa's face, her crooked finger pointing in the direction of where she wanted him to go. Papa released his hold on the steering wheel as his shoulder slumped. They had indicted him back in the tent so he wouldn't have to admit anything that hadn't already been said. Besides, we confessed our sins to one another regularly. Ma told us about her anger at God after Isaiah's death, and Papa confessed to being prideful. This would just be another confession in a line of confessions. And if he said it was wrong, if he admitted it and repented, we could pray for him and find a way to move forward. Tell us, Papa, I finally said with feeble words. I should have said, tell them. They don't know anything. They're lying, all of them. There's nothing to tell. I had leaned forward behind him, straining against the taut seatbelt as I awaited his explanation, but I flopped back into the seat after hearing his flat, false words. Ma placed her left hand on the steering wheel, preventing him from driving off, but his two hands on the wheel wrestled it away from her. He jammed his foot on the gas and turned the wheel so hard that Ma's body slammed into the door. I saw, I began. Ma and Papa snapped around and looked back at me as though I had interrupted their private conversation. You saw nothing, Miriam. His eyes narrowed in the red-tinted darkness from the stoplight overhead. As he held my gaze, daring me to defy him, a flash of heat passed through my feet and made the tips of my toes tingle. Then a bubble of rage rose to my stomach and popped. He knew that I wouldn't, couldn't. I snuck a glance at the revival tent receding over my left shoulder. I knew it was bad luck that looking back turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt, but I couldn't help myself. A ribbon of exhaust streamed from the back of the car, tethering us to the people inside before the tent released us into the dark. Thank you so much. Um, that's a completely gripping scene. And we're going to talk more about the family in your novel in a bit. But first, you know, your your book has been out in the world for, I think, five whole days as of today. It was published on the 25th and we're, we're talking on May 30th. Congratulations. And I can't help but note that while the Hortons can hit the road, you can't or at least not quite yet. And, and we're speaking of what I might describe as kind of a hinge in time. The pandemic shut so many things down, including book tours. And now they're, they're kind of starting to open up again, or maybe they're about to. And we've just been talking to Whitney's editor, Sean McDonald, about this, but we want to hear from you about how it feels for a writer. How has that uncertainty affected your experience of planning for and promoting your work and sharing this thing that has been with you for so long and now is ready to kind of go out into the world? And it's a different world than maybe the one you expected. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that when, so I first sold this book pre-pandemic in February of 2019, and everyone has this idea of what a tour is going to look like, what publication is going to look like, what all these things are going to look like. And then um, I remember when I first found out that my date was going to be spring 2021, I found myself being really kind of disappointed. Oh, that's so far. And I have to wait two years for the book to come out. And then the pandemic hit. And I was like, oh, no, please take long as long as you need for this book to come out until things feel a little bit more normal. So I'm what there was a ton of uncertainty when I, they were actually I was talking to my publicist and my marketing team at the beginning of January is when we first kind of planned out what this was going to look like. And even then they were saying, we hope in person, we're not sure, wait and see, let's find out. And so when I finally got tour dates and those things, I think that maybe it was the beginning of May when I knew for sure that things were going to be virtual. And so everything was virtual, no in-person events. And um, that's what I kind of learned. And I understood it. I'm disappointed, of course. You know, it's really nice to see people in person and do things in person. But uh, that's how I found that out. What I'm hoping, what I'd love to do is something... 
Um, and I've been talking to my agent about this, something maybe later in the summer that feels a little bit farther away from the pandemic that does feel a little bit more in person than um, the Zoom events that have happened. But it's been it's been an experience publishing a book during this time. But I am, it does feel nice to be publishing it what on what feels like the waning part of the pandemic as opposed to kind of the 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 beginning of it. But the one thing that I've learned in the pandemic, of one of many is people are still reading a lot and that's been really lovely and that's been great to see. So the vaccines would have been announced by January. I mean, you would have known, right? But nobody knew how quickly they would start or when mask mandates would start to fall and where that would be. So it's just like, it seems incredibly hard for your publicist to try to guess about that sort of stuff. Did you have those kind of conversations? Right. It's funny. Our conversation, it's not funny. Our conversation was on January 6th, so the day of the insurrection. Oh so my God. we had it in the morning. Oh um, I know. <laughs> but and we had it in the morning. <laughs> so right around 10, my time is when it had, that conversation happened. And then the insurrection started kind of happening later on that day is when, you know, those that those events were happening. And there was so much people didn't know about when the vaccines would roll out. I live in California. And so, um, you know, what it would be like to travel to some states where uh, where I'd where I'd be having readings and what others, you know, other other stores rules are and those types of things. And so we did have those conversations. I think it was so soon then to know what vaccines were going to look like, what rollout was going to be. And then, yeah, so it's just kind of, I just put my faith in them and said, okay, I trust that you know what you're doing and I'll, I'll follow along with, with, with your guidance for that. Have, have the way that this got planned and that you ended up having to do in person, you know, uh, do a, an online tour for the most part, did that, has it opened up any opportunities that you might not have otherwise gotten to do, do you think? I think what's been really lovely about doing a, a Zoom tour, an online tour, has been, I think a lot about people, my parents, for example, who live in Ohio, and the fact that my parents have been at my events, and that would have never happened um, pre-Zoom. And even my students, for example, my students in San Francisco can log into things. My launch event was in, in Oakland, so they could have come to that in person, but you know, I had a, a secondary event in with Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, and I had students in, I had parents in there, I had friends of mine who could have never traveled. And so that's a really, a really nice thing I think about Zoom is that it removes that barrier of travel for people who want to log in and it kind of makes that easier. And the other thing I think I, I appreciate about the Zoom experience is that there are cities that you would never travel to on a book tour. And there are people that you would never get a chance to read to and people you'd never meet and people who will always say, oh, I'm in this such and such city, but your, your, your tour is not coming to my city. And the Zoom experience has allowed tours to be more fluid and allowed people who may have never had, maybe never been to a book reading because they are in a city that, you know, doesn't get tours very often to actually log into and experience what it feels like to have somebody read and to have the experience of buying books and, you know, you know, the, the way that they're kind of um, signing book plates and sending them out. And so whatever that, the, the approximation of, of that normalcy, uh, but it does open it up to more people. Spoken like a true Midwesterner, or at least one broke up, brought up in the Midwest, because now all these people that you're living around in California are just like, well, they have them in California. Why would they need to have them anywhere else? We don't need to have a book reading anywhere else. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I actually had a really fun experience, funny experience when I was teaching here in California, when I went to, uh, when I got into Iowa and I was teaching 10th grade, and I told them I was leaving and I was going to Iowa. And the first question was, you know, they were so sad. And the second question was, 
where's Iowa? Where's and so I had in the, in the middle of my 10th grade class, it became a geography class about, hey, kids in California, there are things outside of California and people who live there. And there are more than just two states in this country of California and New York. So it was also a geography lesson in the midst of an English lesson. That's great. Um, it's, yeah, it's funny to think about, um, yeah, the ways in which this has not brought me face to face with new people, but um, brought me something with new people and this experience of, um, I feel like so much of what I remember about book tour is, I mean, of course, the pleasure of seeing my friends and loved ones, you know, in different cities, but also meeting a reader who would be really enthusiastic and I didn't know them. And, um, I think of your book in a certain way was, it was funny to read it and think about the conversation that we were going to have. Cause in some ways it's actually like, it's partially a road trip novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Hortons are on this evangelical trip. Um, they're Baptists. They, they travel and they meet new people all the time. And I'm curious about how the experience of travel and meeting strangers is connected to evangelical faith. And if you can talk a little bit about the challenges of writing about that kind of road trip. Sure. So I think that part of the idea of travel is important to this kind of evangelical faith that this family possesses is their mission is to save souls and convert people and as many people as possible. And so this idea of proselytizing, spreading the word, spreading the gospel has to be something for them that spreads beyond what they their current little town in Texas. And so they have kind of a lock on that place there, but so much of what they do is meeting new people on the road in these revival tents in these other cities that, you know, they just go to in the summers. And so that's part of it. The other part of it that seems really interesting about this is there are these week-long events or these five-day-long events that this family's kind of here and then they just disappear. And so they're not connected to the places where they go. And so there does feel like this element of we're here, we're doing this, we have this mission to kind of convert you and save you and to heal you. And then we're going to do it somewhere else. And we kind of repeat the show again and again. And a huge cha- there are a few challenges of writing a book that takes place on the road a lot. Number one was keeping this idea of this very confined, claustrophobic space fresh for a reader and fresh for myself. It's a van, and it's a van for a, a fair chunk of the novel. And what is, how do I make a van interesting? How do I make what's happening in a van feel alive and different and not redundant and monotonous? And so I try to focus a lot on the interactions in the van, also kind of more where they get to and more the places where they go as opposed to being in this van for a really long time. But a lot of tension, I was kind of trying to build up a lot of tension and make tension feel new each time they were in the van differently. Um, and I think another challenge of writing about writing this novel is the, um, they, they're just kind of, they're nomads. They're, they're kind of moving around from place to place. So it was a ton of research to get the places, try to get those places right where they go. Um, and also try to kind of show their interactions in these places in a way that felt authentic to the family, authentic to these places, and authentic to this faith that they're kind of trying to, you know, pass along to the people that they meet. It seems really hard. I was just thinking about um, several years ago, I went on a temple tour of South India with my parents, and I'm friends with a, a writer who lives in a certain town, and we passed through her town, but we did it so swiftly that I couldn't meet up with her. And she she sort of messaged me back, like, don't worry, I understand you're on the holy smear. I was like, it's true, I can't, I mean, I was, I had seen so many religious places and met so many people so quickly that they all sort of blurred together. And that also seemed like it might be a, like a challenge to, you were, because you're constantly introducing new characters and they matter and then they kind of immediately also don't. 
Um, mm-hmm. So there's sort of an episodic quality, but then there's things of consequence that happen in all of these different spots. Right. I think one of the things I, I remember during my um, my first semester, my second year at Iowa with, um, I think with Margot Livesey, and she was saying that these, the things that happen here have to matter. And so the, you know, when I was kind of doing the initial, the initial beginning of the book, I was just more interested in, oh, here's what this place is like, and here's where they go, and here's the scenery, which I, would, I could do all day, but that's not interesting to anyone but me. But this idea of make something matter here. And so even though they're meeting new people, there are some that fall away, but each of them kind of builds up in this arc of what's happening with him and Samuel's fall. And so I had to, the people I introduced, though their names may not be important by the end of the book, the experiences he had with them seemed to matter and seemed to be weighty, weighty in some way. Also, the idea, another thing that was difficult was deciding what to summarize and what to keep in scene. So this idea of what healings are get summary, get summary and what, what healings get full scene. And this, the ones that got seen were the ones where something of consequence happened that then stayed with them. The residue of that event stayed with them even as they moved somewhere else. I mean, craft-wise, you were talking about the, the difficulties of keeping the novel fresh but being in the van all the time, but sometimes those kinds of restrictions can lead to innovation, I think. And it helps sometimes to know what the novel's not going to be, you know, uh, and to put limits on it. Uh, at least that's what I tell people a lot of the time. I, I grew up in a, in a religious family, so I've, I don't think I've ever seen a faith healer, but I've definitely, you know, seen people speak in tongues and, like, lay hands on each other to heal, you know, through prayer um, so, you know, I, there were scenes in there and a vibe that I was, that I, you know, was familiar with. Um, did you grow up in a re- uh, religious family and what kinds of faith are important to you now? Mm-hmm. I did grow up in a religious family, but not this type of religious family. So, um, I grew up in a, I, I'm from a Baptist family. And so the same denomination that my family that I grew up in is a denomination in the book. Um, but, but in the sense of, not a ton of familiarity with, um, I didn't grow up going to tent revivals. I didn't grow up going, seeing faith heals. I've seen people, you know, I've seen healings and laying on of hands. I've seen a lot of prayer. I've seen those types of things, but in church services and not in a separate space, not in kind of a tent revival space. I mean, I, I, I have been to tent revivals and I did a lot of research on those, but that wasn't my upbringing. So I grew up Baptist, uh, you know, one Sunday, once, you know, Sunday morning Christians and, you know, that's how I grew up. And then, um, and but my parents are no one's a no one's in the clergy. No, every they have secular professions, and I said, and I went to school, it was public school, and um, and for me right now, faith has been. I still consider myself Christian. That that's that's still that's still my faith, and I still proud. I still go to church, but um, I think that one of the things that has been complicated about it is that my faith is really strong and really important to me. And the the more I kind of grow in that, I, I don't go to I go to Baptist church a bit. I don't consider myself. Baptist much. I go to kind of non-denominational churches now, but, um, and I try to go to more inclusive churches, but the idea of kind of the difference between personal faith and then the larger structures of church have been really problematic for me. And so that's, I think, where the book came from is this idea of kind of what's, what do you believe in and what gives you kind of a true north and a center and a sense of ethics and purpose. But then there's this larger thing that puts things on you and you don't know, you don't believe a lot of the things that this larger structure believes. And so that's, I think, the split that I've been feeling with my personal faith. And that's kind of how I describe it right now. I think one of the things I love about your book so much is that I'm, I'm interested in the politics of kind of uh, communities and their, their self-critique. And there's so much of that in this book. 
And um, thinking about, you know, what a, what an in-person book tour might have meant for you, you might have been in conversation with readers who are religious, uh, attached to this community in some way, attached to other religious communities, um, atheists. I mean, who knows, right? The, the kinds of conversations you might have had in person, it could have been really different. Um, and I think that it seems like a thing where virtual conversations are going to have a different quality, maybe be more inclusive, reach more people, but also have um, different levels of intimacy. It also seems um, like like church is a thing that's been contentious during the pandemic. You know, um, we should be able to gather for worship. Um, you know, that's a protected right. Um, no, this is a problem for, for public health. And I wonder what kinds of conversations with communities of faith you will seek out as part of sharing this work and given the circumstances, how you've already planned to do it, how you might plan to do it in the future? That's such a, a great question. I think the first part of it, which is um, the the idea of kind of self-critique or the idea of critiquing from within the community, I think is, it matters to me as well. And the idea of, um, I think I could critique a different community, but I can critique this community really differently because I this is community that I consider something that matters to me and something that feels important. Um, and and I and I thought about that the idea of kind of what a an in person tour could be and I mean I've had people reaching out to me via email saying hey I've been a member of a church for this long and you know that would be a really different conversation in person to kind of have somebody people I think will come to this book from really different ways and paths and to have somebody reach out to you and say I felt this way my whole life I'm still in this church or I felt this way my whole life and that's why I left the church and that's why I'm an atheist now or that's why I don't believe this anymore. Um, or that's why so I that's, don't like your book. <laughs> that's why I don't like your book. <laughs> exactly. And that's why you're a terrible writer. You should never write again. Um, Stop saying bad things about my church. <laughs> right. And then, and, and, and religion is so contentious. So this idea of even writing this book was, I mean, when I first started writing, I didn't think about the publication process. I just wanted to write it. And then after then it's like, ah, I'm writing a book about religion. Why, why am I doing that? Um, and people have so many opinions about it, but I think that what I hope it inspires and, and, and I haven't quite thought about my role and what that's going to look like with communities of faith or communities that I, I, feel, I believe I'm speaking to, um, in this book. And that's communities that I've either been a part of, or I've left or communities that, um, maybe I'm still a part of that. I think that what I hope it does is helps people just interrogate larger systems. I think everybody has an individual experience of some form of belief, and it doesn't matter what you believe in, right? It's everyone has some experience of believing in something, just people believe in different things. And, but it's the, this element of the, of the structure and the kind of larger overarching structure that I think this book is trying to critique and that I'm trying to critique. And so I hope it opens up a path for people to say, just because I believe this specific thing just because I worship in this specific place or do this kind of ritual or practice I'm allowed to feel really differently about this overarching thing that exists for that that doesn't feel like it aligns with how I believe and what I feel and that's what I hope a larger conversation is I have to think through what that looks like I mean it's a conversation I plan to have with people in my church and I don't know if they're going to be happy about it and that's kind of okay um but I imagine that it's going to be something that involves this idea of the personal and then the the structural um, and the idea of what happens when the structural no longer serves the personal and what happens when the structural is actually really flawed and problematic. I mean, it's interesting to me. 
I have a lot of students here at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I mean, not a lot, but every two or three every year, right, who are coming to me, coming to us, our program, from deeply religious backgrounds, usually in some, usually around in Missouri or Arkansas, sort of rural areas, Tennessee, maybe, uh, who are trying to figure out like, okay, they want it out of that community and they have, they have real critiques, right? But they're also... So they're, they're thinking of two audiences, right? They're both have, they're writing, they know this community is going to read this thing, but they also know that like secular people in New York are going to read it who have a very different, who have an already preconceived position about that community. And they're trying to negotiate that. Gerard Conley, who we've also had on the show, you know, was dealing with that in his book. I wondered how you thought about that, like your two different audiences that are potential readers here. Yeah, I think that I thought about that a lot. Once I thought, once I got past this idea of this book being for me and kind of thinking maybe I, it's something that I could do more with or getting feedback on it, that there's something here that you should keep working through. I thought a ton about both and I feel tremendous. I feel two things. I feel number one, it is very common and especially with certain secular communities or communities that have really negative experiences with religion to write off this family and to say, they whatever they they don't believe in what i believe they're they're dumb they this this practice doesn't feel it's not real and all these things and therefore therefore i don't have to i don't have to care about these people they're like outside of my experience you know that is a real problem to solve in a novel like this yeah and i think that one of the things uh, I, I hesitate to say this, but uh one thing that i think that the last four years of the previous president has taught us is that um there are lots of people in this country who feel there, there are so many people. I used to think I speak into a, a vacuum of people who believe just like I do. They have the same politics I do. They have the same beliefs I do. And not the same religion that I do, but the, the things that we believe in, um, we vote for the same presidents and the same kind of people in city council. But there is also, there are a lot of other people in the world who do not believe how you believe. And I think that one of the things in terms of this book for me was that um, thinking about audience and having a professor at Iowa say, well, who's going to, people aren't religious, who's going to read this book? And reading what I teach, what I teach my students about is reading is an act of empathy. And there are so many books that I read that have nothing to do with how I was raised, how I was brought up, what I believe. There are, there are books I read that fully contradict these things I think to be true. And those other voices and viewpoints matter. And I think that when to be a, an individual in a society um, and, to be an, and to be someone who's aware of the world means being aware of lots of different sides of the world. And granted, you don't have to read everything, you don't have to agree with everything, but you, I think you should try to expose yourself to things and even things that you disagree with. And, um, and, and just kind of, you, of course you can write it off. You can read this book and throw it to the side and say, oh, I, I don't believe in them and I don't, I don't believe like they believe and I'm just gonna kind of cast it aside. Or you can say, I see some fundamental humanity in this character, even if I don't agree with how she, what she agrees with. There are some universal things, which is this idea that everyone comes to a point where they kind of find some larger thing that they disagree with. Everyone has at some point felt some sense of not being heard or represented or feeling honored for kind of what they stand for in larger structures. And so even if you don't have the same system that Miriam has and her family has, that's okay. But I think there's some, there's some humanity in this experience of reading something that's different and seeing and finding ways to see yourself in something because you can't always see everything that you want and everything that you are reflected in a piece of fiction or nonfiction. So that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is for the two different audiences part, it is such a tightrope because what I did want to do is make sure that 
I left room for people who are people who identify as deeply religious to see themselves and people who identify as not to see something in there that's interesting. So I leave some things wide open. So in terms of the healing scenes, you can say, I believe that fully and I've seen that and I've been in those rooms. Or you can say, this is fiction and it's magic and it's all these things that these people believe in that I don't believe in. And I think that I I try to leave a little bit of room and ambiguity in the book for all those types of readings into it. You know, I, I, it, it, it remains to be seen if that has worked for people, but that's what I was really working to do. Well, I thought it worked for me. And I thought that um, people need to know about these. This is an undescribed part of the world, that these communities are both black and white, that they are not, you know, they're not, you know, there's all kinds of space here that is not being touched on. And that to touch on, un, to describe undescribed places is one of the rules that a novelist has. Right. And this idea of to, to give to give voice to people that people can overlook and have been overlooking. And so here's the super tricky part of that though, is I also recognize that in this country, Christianity is the dominant religion. Christianity causes a ton of harm to a ton of different groups of people, marginalized people. Christianity marginalizes people all the time. And so recognizing that there is power, that it's not a structure that, you know, when people talk about feeling disempowered by being Christian in this country, people who are Christian, the majority in this country, not in the world, but in this country. And like to imagine that they're being persecuted all the time. So that's one right. of the real big it's problems. Like, but you're kind of, but you're not. And, <laughs> and in some ways, maybe you are. And so that is also a tricky thing, which is these communities, like this small community of faith and this, you know, this family, their, their experience is singular in some ways. Um, and you can they if they went to a you know a market in New York someone would probably make fun of them for how they're dressed and whatever but in the largest but there are lots of them in this country and so there is also that element of it's hard to feel a little too persecuted when you know you are the majority in this country um, in lots of ways and in a lot of the power brokers and a lot of things are happening and people are upset with things and making their voices heard primarily because of they identify with this larger religious structure which you know is not always doing, I think, amazing things. Um, so there are larger parts of the religion, I think, are kind of, like I said earlier, are harming people. And there are small pockets of, there are pockets of good as well. So, you know, speaking of self-critique as we were, so many religious institutions crumble because authority figures and usually clergy, often men, are revealed to be flawed in some way. And your book made me think of not only the church, but also the family as a religious institution that could crumble in that way. And and Whitney mentioned a previous guest, um, and, and this I, I thought of a different guest we had, Megan Phelps Roper, who was way back in December 2019, came on and talked to us about belonging to the Westboro Baptist Church and leaving it, and talked to us about her experience of writing, about emerging from that set of beliefs and language to develop her own. And, and that made me think about your protagonist, Miriam. And Megan spoke about the Westboro Baptist Church's desire not to change minds, but to publish, right? Um, you know, predestination sort of meaning that people were going to believe what they believed, but so Westboro was just going to say what they wanted to say with no goal to change. But in revival season, the Hortons are seeking to persuade and to convert and to change. So I'm curious about how you thought about depicting the relationship between that goal and the role of fate or God's will, which does come up for the Hortons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's such a tricky line um, for 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 families, for you know, religious people in particular, which is their whole goal is in this evangelical goal, which is we need to save people, heal people, convert people, baptize people, um, get as many people as possible to believe what we believe, which is you know, 
what what we say is the truth and you know these these sets of beliefs in God and what God does and how God reveals himself to people um and that's what this family believes deeply 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 and so their service is to then take other people and make them believe the same way um and so I think that what's interesting about that which is what happens when this thing of I need to take this truth that is such a it's a tenuous thing, right? Because there, and as, and as much as it can provide a lot of comfort and clarity and answers, like any, you know, lots of religion can do that. It gives us comfort. It gives us clarity. It gives us purpose. It gives us a sense of ethics and morals. But then there are also so many other questions that it opens up, which is kind of one of the big questions of the book is, um, you know, what, what's the nature of suffering, right? Um, and we can't always answer that. We can't always, it's, so there are things that fate also then has a role in that, Samuel has no control over. There's this larger, he, he wants to believe that he can control this larger narrative outside of himself and he also can't. And so that's how Hannah as a character comes into the book as a sense of, you know, what are the limits of my power? And in as much as I want you to believe what I believe and I want, and, and he starts to see himself as this kind of godlike figure until even after he is revealed to have been a, a bit of a fraud, um, he still sees himself that way and can't quite dial back on his rage, can't quite dial, quite dial back on his pride. But there is this big, there's a big question mark in his family, even with his daughter, with his youngest daughter, with his, with his stillborn child, Isaiah, of there are things I cannot control. There are things I cannot do. There are things I cannot heal, things I cannot save, people I cannot reach. Um, and that's way bigger than me. And I think for Samuel, he would love to make it everything instructive. It's all a lesson. But I think even he can see that there are things that he has no control over. But when, but his pride makes him real, spiral out of control when he realizes that there are things that are bigger than him in this world. I often think about the economic reasons that people turn to religion because what I notice in books that I read about this and what I noticed when in growing up was that um, people who were, had run into an economic dead end or did not know what to do with themselves, quite honestly, like one thing the church will do is accept you no matter what. And you get to walk in the door and suddenly you have purpose, even if you don't have a job or even if you're sweeping, you know, the toilets at the Texaco station down the road. And you're valuable in a way that maybe the economy or the capitalists or, you know, the people at Bank of America don't think that you're valuable. And I feel like that is one of the things that is not often explored as an attraction for faith. I think that's a fantastic point. And I think that one of the things that um, I try to do when I deal with the revival tent scenes are this is a swath of the whole community and people come in who, I mean, you, you come into, you come into maybe this tent, right? Not necessarily into religion, but you come into this tent down on your luck and no one, no one asks you kind of where you live, what you do, how much you make. Um, you are, a lot of the attraction of that is come as you are, right? And come as you are, you are, there's value in you. There's value in what you can do. Even if that doesn't, that value doesn't translate to, you know, you may not be able to serve and, you know, um, preach or do these things, but there's value in who you are. And a lot of people haven't heard that. Um, and that's why I think religion is really attractive and it's, there's value in what you are and there's, and, and, and you matter to God, right? That's the larger thing. You matter to God. You matter to something, this kind of being and purpose outside of yourself. 
Um, and the one thing yeah. you must do is believe all of this stuff we're going to tell you. Exactly. But if you do that, you, you're good to go. Yeah. I mean, I sort of feel like that's the way the Trump administration was staffed, which was one of the problems for them. Like, all you got to do is yes. believe that this guy's really great and you can yeah. have, be White House communications director. But, you know, like that, that, that is kind of like how religion works, you know? Yeah. And the other part of it is, too, which is... Um, we see something in you, right? And if, if people are always telling you there's nothing in you that's valuable, but we see something in you, oftentimes that that service comes in, you know, it can be a little bit, um, you can think of it as kind of being utilitarian. You serve a purpose, you can do this one thing for us, you can, sometimes that also becomes economic, which is you can then tithe and give and, and worship, you know, but, there, but if you believe these things that we say, you're fine and you're in, but it doesn't leave room for actually asking questions. It's you have to believe this thing on these terms, similar to your Trump administration kind of analogy, which is apt, you can't, but you can't ask questions. If you can't ask a question about something, then how does can something fully serve you or fully be um, able to meet your needs? And I think one of the great question askers of your book, of course, is your narrator, Miriam. And the book is in so many ways, I mean, some of what we're talking about here, like um, self-critique, questioning, I think I referenced patriarchy before, Right. The, the book has powerful women characters. A lot of the self-critique, the self-critique of the communities coming from those women characters in different ways. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about women in the community that is depicted in the book and how you researched and thought about that. So one of the things that this that this denomination or this their particular faith that the Hortons have that they kind of that's valuable to them is we see men running the show in all the really conspicuous ways, right? The father is behind the stage. There are the, cir- the semicircle of deacons sitting behind him. There's his heir apparent son who we get the sense it doesn't really kind of want to be there and is, you know, but is there and then is kind of on the side of the father we see. But then on the flip side of it, we see all the roles of service, right? The, the serving of dinners and the filling up of drinks and the bathing of sisters and the, the, the caring for children and that emotional work being relegated in some ways um, by to to these to these women, but yet if you think about it, even with Mrs. Cade, the midwife in the Texas church, so much of the power in this in this in these churches comes from women. Women do the work behind the scenes; they get none of the credit, and they get all of the. In this case, with Miriam and 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 and, and Joanne, all of the abuse, right? But none of the credit, none of the power, none of the glory that comes with being in this life or being in this family, and I and. I think that the questions, the questions are asked by the people who are not served by this faith. And so Joanne, I think, still feels too wrapped up in this idea of her finding her husband, Samuel, and then also finding religion at the exact same time. And so she's having this really hard time separating her husband from this idea of God and from what saved her from her childhood. And, and so she can't really, she's not able to kind of extricate those two things. But Miriam is starting to, because from the previous summer, she's seen something that she tried to kind of reconcile and make sense of and tried to believe. And then she has to really think about what would happen if this did this happen not to be true? And how would I how would I live in the world if this thing happened not to be true? And so that's something I've been thinking a lot about. And she's allowed to question primarily because number one, the, 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 the church isn't serving her and her father's beliefs are no longer serving her. And so then she's left for with, well, what do I do if this doesn't serve me? How do I figure this out without something larger helping to kind of guide my hand in this? And I think that's been her, that's been her real struggle. 
Monica, thank you so much for joining us and for such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure and a joy. Thank you. And listeners, please go check out Revival Season, Monica West's debut novel, which is out now. So is this a singular or plural Bitcoin thing? It would be really nice because I do Sugi, own some Bitcoin. It'd be really nice if it were plural Bitcoin. What's what if it's neither singular nor plural, but like part of Bitcoin? Is there a good word for that? A fraction? That would be the word. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. Our show's producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and on our YouTube channel. Our new website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Special thanks to University of Minnesota student Shashank Murali, who designed the site, and University of Minnesota student Dylan Mietinen, who helped with its initial conception. Happy reading, writing, and listening from Fiction Nonfiction. 